Hello, my fellow sovereigns, and welcome back to another episode of The Princess and the Bee. I am so excited to be here with you today with our special guest, Andrea J. Simon, PhD, also known as Andy Simon. She is an international leader in the growing field of corporate anthropology and Welcome to the Princess and the Bee podcast, the place to be to build your empire as queen of your body, business, and life. I'm your host, Kimberly Spencer, founder of crownyourself.com, and I'm an award-winning coach, Amazon best-selling author, and multi-passionate entrepreneur. Each week, I give you the systems, strategies, and success stories to help you master your mindset, communicate with ease, and triple your productivity so you make the income and the impact you deserve. Imagine this podcast as your weekly spark of inspiration as you take it to the next level with all the bees of your life, body, business, bank account, boys and babies. Let's make it rain. Hello, hello, and welcome back to The Princess and the Bee. I am so excited to be here with you because I have always been fascinated by human behavior. And there's a metaphor that I constantly use about how to step outside your life like an anthropologist. And well, it's only fitting that today I have Andy Simon, who is a corporate anthropologist. She is the author and the CEO and the founder of Simon Associates Management and Consultants. She helps executives see their companies with more observant eyes and achieve aha moments, because that's what we all love is a good breakthrough, and discover new and profitable opportunities by applying the concepts, the tools of anthropology to business environments, She turns observation into innovation, one of my favorite things, and revitalizes businesses seeking growth. She is also the author of On the Brink, A Fresh Lens to Take Business to New Heights. Andrea, welcome to The Princess and the Bee. Well, Kim, it's great to be here. So how did you find your path into corporate anthropology and and what specifically is corporate anthropology? Which way shall I answer that? I was in college um, wandering around trying to figure out both who I was and what was I interested in. And I took an anthro course and it caught my heart, caught my interest and I have never turned back. When I met my husband 52 years ago, we were on a beach and he said, what do you want to be now that you've grown up? And I said, I'm either gonna be an attorney or an anthropologist. And he said the famous lines, oh, be an anthropologist and I'll be here for you. I'm not sure about the second part, but I became an anthropologist. I was just fascinated with people and how they adapted and changed and evolved and all parts of the anthropological methodology and and theory. Corporate, people say to me, I thought anthropologists study small scale societies. I said, yes, but what makes you think a business is in a small scale society? And I don't care if you're in a mega business or a mid-market company or a entrepreneurs or you have your values, your beliefs, your culture, the things that you believe to be true, even if they're not, and you are really good at what you think you're really good at, sometimes yes and sometimes no. Um, but I have been both a practitioner of this for a long time. I was an academic for a decade. I was in banking for 15 years, helping banks deregulate and change. And for seven years, I was with healthcare companies as an executive. And then in 2002, I launched my business. 
I don't think there were five people looking for a corporate anthropologist then, uh, but I was a corporate anthropologist to help them change. And I never looked back. It's been fun. So is your focus more on company culture and the ecosystem that you're creating as a business owner? Well, yes, uh, to some degree, uh, when we're working with companies that need to change, that ecosystem is far bigger than the company itself. And often they have no idea what's outside of the box that they're working in. They're really good at running the factory or making, manufacturing something, but they don't quite understand why sales are flat or people aren't answering the sales phones that their salespeople are calling. And, and they often are inside out thinkers and we try to flip that and get them to be outside in thinkers. And if they don't go exploring, they have no idea what the outside is like. So we take them to spend a day in the life of their customer. If you ever hung out with a customer, you would learn all the things they do and don't, particularly with your own product. And often they don't use your product the way you thought they were using your product and they undermine it and they modify it and they make it work for them, not for you. Uh, and often I have them, there's nothing better, you work with CEOs, I have the CEO sit on the customer service phones and they get startled beyond belief of what people are asking for. And there are, some there are some company stories in my book where they sat there and people were asking for things that their service person said, oh, we don't do that. Oh, no, no, I don't know who does that. Well, all their growth came from all the questions people are asking for. And finally, in one case, the CEO said, why do you keep telling them we don't do it? And she said, because we don't, you told me we don't do it. He said, but I can do all of that. He grew 40% by listening to what people were asking for. They were asking and he was deleting. And there are a bunch of stories where it's all coming to you. If only you'll open your mind up to see what's right in front of you. And so that's what we do. And we modify the methodology so it's doable in a reasonable amount of time. But once you take them exploring, they never go back inside. Oh, I love that. I love that being able to really hone in on the, the customer and, and what the customer is seeking. Because sometimes we can get very insulary in what we're in what we're doing and, and, and not realize that, that that is required to, to continuously be, have your finger on the pulse of, of the customer and what their, what their life is. I mean, I learned that early on when I was in my e-commerce business and we were selling this backstretching rehabilitative device that could be doubled as office furniture. And we realized quickly on that people were asking for refunds because they weren't really using the product because we had to actually address how to habitually change a person first so that they use the product, let alone like incorporated it into their life and made it a natural part of their life to, you know, stretch in the middle of the day on their chair. And, <laughs> that, <laughs> and that was so such powerful knowledge because we saw that there was an educational base that also had to go in to our inbound in our in, inbound marketing. So I would love to know what what are are the ahas normally because the the company gets a better pulse on what the customers are needing and wanting. Well, they often have to go through a process of discovery. Um, I often say if you want to change, have a crisis or create one, because unless your brain is in crisis mode, you're really not going to pay attention. Today, I don't ever want to waste a crisis like this one. But by and large, you need to have something that's a trigger that makes you look curious about what you don't know. Then I often will take them out and we'll spend some time in a client's manufacturing plant or with them talking about what's going on in their business. 
and we'll walk out and write down everything we've heard. And it was as if we were in two different places. What I heard were the gaps. And what they heard was how to fit it into their product line, the things that they do now. So if you don't think beyond the box and create a new sandbox often, you get stuck in what you believe to be true. And your mind has a beautiful story in it. It only hears what affirms it. It doesn't like the unfamiliar. It doesn't even hear the unfamiliar. The amygdala hijacks it, it flees it. It's uncomfortable. You know, you doubt it. But I can listen and hear all kinds of opportunities. And so as we go through this, the interesting part is when all of a sudden they begin to hear differently and they say, oh, wow. And, and I had one client, he had a great product, wasn't selling in the South or Southwest. He said, oh, they don't need it. So I looked at the emails and there were 60 of them over a month period, all from where he didn't sell it. And he said, well, what do they need it for? I said, I don't know. They're working really hard to email you. Well, let's find out what they need it for. He said, well, we don't have any distribution down there. I said, the number of hurdles you present to them is amazing. You don't need a distribution. You can be your own distributor. So all of a sudden he grew 40%. They all have this 40% growth when simply listening to what customers or non-customers, and I focus on non-customers often, are asking for. In today's world, people don't buy the way they used to. They come searching. What's mm -hmm. coming to your website? You know, what are you deleting? This particular customer's marketing person was deleting all the emails because we don't sell down there. And no, it sounds bizarre. But that's what we begin to discover because the gap is there between where you are, where you can go. And usually we focus so on the customer, but maybe it's a non-user who could really drive us or their unmet needs that could be an opportunity for us. So we try to help them think beyond. I'm, I'm going to say out of the box. I'm going to ask them to think differently. And sometimes we create a new sandbox and it works. Awesome. So what, what are some of the key principles that you see that really deliver, that really allow that the, the CEO and the corporation to shift their perspective to scale? So, I mean, I've heard a couple common threads of looking at the non-customers to see what they're, they've been asking for and what they're searching for, looking at the customers and, and delivering greater value, but what are some other principles that you've noticed? Well, we're value innovators. We're blue ocean thinkers. And mm -hmm. value innovation is not being an imitator or an incrementalist, but it's really thinking about how do I remove things that add no value, add things that will be really creative, and, and, and really begin to redirect what we're offering as a solution that is different from what's out there. Often it's the package but we try to make it simple and easy for people to get what they need as opposed to adding complexity and finding that engineers over-engineer things. I've had one client, a software engineering firm who thought their clients were all stupid just because they didn't understand what they were for, for doing. So we try to begin to make them step out and look at things as if we can make it as simple and easy for someone to solve their problem. And instead of looking at everyone else in that industry as another, um, perhaps to be the only, or at least the best of the rest. And the most important thing is not to assume that what you're making is perfect, but really co-create in some fashion. Co-creation with a client is a very um, trust-building approach that gets you a prototype that you never imagined because the client can't really tell you what they're looking for, but you can listen to their story and begin to hear opportunities oh, that are right before you. Uh, John Seeley Brown, the um, innovator, once said, the way forward is all around you if only you can see it. 
And, and truly, we believe that you have to see it, you have to believe it, and then we act mm -hmm. on it. But if you believe it, then all of a sudden you can make it come real. So those are some of the things that we preach, in part because we understand human nature and humans resist things because it's easier not to change. And they run the other way because it's familiar and they have to be collaborators with their mind instead of letting their mind take them to where there's most pleasure. That's easy. Oh, I love that. Become really collaborators with your mind. That is all. Yes. Oh. That is so that is that is a juicy mic drop moment right there, Andrea, because that that collaboration is so essential to be able to allow for your you as the leader of your business to dance on the edge of comfort. Yes. Well, remember, your mind will migrate to what it thinks you like and want and your mind will believe whatever it is you told it. Can you change the way you tell your mind? Absolutely. It also goes to pleasure, not pain. And change is painful. The brain hates change. And it also has a picture or story in there. And that's where it sees reality. And it only finds the stuff that conforms to it. And it hates the unfamiliar, which is change. So when you believe the mind is something that's influencing what you're doing, helping you see good and not, you begin to say, ah, how do I collaborate with mind? You've got to tell it a new story. And then it will start to believe it. And then obviously you'll see all kinds of opportunities around you, which is so much fun. Now, how do you do that inside of the corporate culture? So getting every, is it about getting everybody to see the same vision this, and, and really get clear on those core values? Is it, and, and is it allowing for greater listening skills and, and less of a, a desire to be right and more of a desire to be uh, to learn and to explore how in how in inside of the corporate culture specifically can can we hone this skill well it depends what kind of culture you have and we're culture experts we use the organizational culture assessment instrument developed at the university of michigan and we're consultants with the folks in the netherlands who have it so i'll give you a quick quick clip about it because the answer to your question is it depends on what kind of culture you have they are very creative cultures with visionaries who are empowering their folks, who are always on the bleeding edge. They're always looking to how to do it even better. The opposite of that is a controlling hierarchical culture. Mm -hmm. And so you have those who are great innovators and those who are great controllers where the rules rule. And those folks don't really look for change. They're very happy doing the same. I have one client like that. They were certain about certainties the innovators are always looking for opportunities. The certainties are looking for the rules and the processes. Then we have creators who are, pardon me, we have competitors who are looking for that bottom line result and they're looking at what their competition's doing. And the opposite of those are collaborators who are team oriented, who are very family oriented. I've had clients who are off the edge. I've had commodities trainers off the edge of competition, made a lot of money, collaborated, not at all, created very little. And they really understood how to play the algorithm game. And then I've had family firms and others who are so, actually one big American vehicle manufacturers, Alif, was so collaborative. They had 30 people at these meetings and nothing ever got decided. So now to come to your question, how do you change the culture? And, and depending on what kind you have, we begin to work with them on what it is today, what they would prefer to be. And the, the methodology and allows them to evaluate it. Sometimes we've had a whole health system take the organizational cultural assessment instrument and they all 2,500 people took it. 
And they all began to see how they wanted to be more collaborative and innovative. Then we discovered that the words didn't mean anything. Sure, I want to be innovative, but I'm not going to let the nurse make changes at the bedside. <laughs> and I'm certainly not going to worry about how we triage them at the emergency room. You know, mm-hmm. that. So, so what's innovative? And without an innovative gym or some process for testing stuff, it was really hard. And then we're going to be more collaborative. I said, so are we going to have housekeeping change the beds faster so nurses can move patients in? Oh, that's not the way we do it. I said, so what are we going to collaborate on? You know what you want it to be like, um, but you're not quite sure how to do that. And when we begin to get them to see it, they can begin to tell us about, well, what will collaboration be? How do we get this all aligned so that our velocity improves and the emergency room doesn't have to be on diversion and we're aligned against it? Um, It was fascinating because once they began to tell about how they could do it, then we said, okay, what are the small wins to get you there? How do we begin to move forward? You have a vision for where you want to go? Now, how do we get you to move? The small wins are important because practice is better than turning a battleship with an oar. And the small Mm -hmm. wins build credibility and trust. And they also build teams. One of the, we worked with one large manufacturing company in Mexico, and they were so siloed, they couldn't keep any new hires because they didn't want to work in such a siloed hierarchical organization. And so they had to begin to work on cross-silo collaborations. And that was very challenging. Doing it in Spanish was equally so, but it was (laughs) a, a culture that was very happy the way it was, except they couldn't hire anybody. So the crisis was coming. Uh, now can we change? What is it that young people want? They don't really know. I mean, you could hear the generational conversations. It takes a lot of patience. Um, I don't know whether you know the literature, but even people who have had cardiac um, disease of some kind or heart attacks, only 40% of them change their lifestyle. And so you can have a, a life-threatening experience and still not change. Mm-hmm. The brain hates change. And so you need to change your mind, collaborate with it, tell it a new story. And the things that are painful change, make it pleasure. I'm going to feel so good when I change this organization. Everybody's going to work together better. And when they do, business goes like this. And all the things that have been holding them back go like this. And they say, oh, we can do this. That most interesting part is that if you begin to believe it, you see it and it happens. If you don't believe it, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. I, I love all these principles because I know you work with, with predominantly very large companies. And each one of these principles can also apply to the entrepreneur with a team of two, like, or a, or a small, small company, because the brand, like I've seen this exact, uh, this similar pattern with many of my clients who are just like learning to delegate and surrender that control. Cause they're so used to having like doing all the things themselves as they're building their business and learning how to surrender that control. So they're they're not in the micromanaging space. And so that they are able to trust and bring on team and bring on team that's aligned with the vision because that's really ultimately what they want. Yes, well, it's true. And I, we've worked with $10 million companies and we don't really work with $5 million. The $10 million company was fascinating to your point because he wanted to grow to 100 million. Mm-hmm. And um, he was doing it with his wife, his sister-in-law, um, friends, friends and family. Um, It wasn't scalable. And he didn't understand what the word scalable meant. And he had gotten to a point where there weren't any more hours in the day to do all the jobs that had to get done. Mm -hmm. And to your, you know, how do you delegate without abdicating? 
How do you hold people accountable? He actually had a bad uh, accountant and uh, that turned into a, a mess. But you can't run a business that's growing without some processes and controls and some accountability and a process for assessing it. And you got to stay close to the numbers. I do think the business is seen in the numbers. And if you ignore them at your own peril, it can be a mm -hmm. mess. So, and to grow from small to big happens all the time. Um, you just need some new skills in your skill set. And so assume you're going to be uh, not only a great thinker with a great idea who can turn it into a great business, but you need a little hand along the way. Mm -hmm. And each next level really requires a new next level skill set for for the leader, because as mm -hmm. the business goes, <laughs> the business goes the way of the leader. So the leader is steering that Titanic into the iceberg. <laughs> it's it's. <laughs> Is it doesn't matter how pretty your business might be. If, if it's headed to the iceberg, it's it's headed that way. So I, I love the fact that you you brought that down into such um, a relatable level because a lot of times with leader, what are the common things as an anthropologist that you see are holding a leader back, the skill sets that they really need to adapt and learn into? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have two leadership academies and I love to do them because very often the business is um, held back by the fact you got a lot of uh, employees and you got some senior folks, but not a lot of folks who can communicate down through the ranks and get things done. Um, the, we, we talk often about empathy and about the self-regulation and about feeling the, the needs of others. I'm, I'm I actually have a great program now on followership because I've become a big fan of Barbara Kellerman and the fact that leaders can't do anything effectively without followers. The leadership industry is huge. If you Google leadership on Google, there are 450 million responses possible. If you Google followership, there's maybe a million. And we've looked at this to such a degree about the leaders and about what kind of leaders we need that we've ignored the fact that there are different kinds of followers. And a leader can only be good if he's got a real tone, a sense, of what his followers are all about. Are they isolate? And we've seen those where they, they keep to their office. They don't do anything other than what has to be done. They punch in and punch out. Are they bystanders who are watching what's happening? You can imagine a leader with a bystander follower who's just watching, watching what the leader's doing, watching what others are doing. Then you have those who are participants. And the participants are fascinating because a leader can really glom onto them. And together, they can begin to tell a different story and make things happen. And then there are advocates and they become so passionate about what's going on that they can lead without the leader. And so the leadership and effectiveness of them has to be really connected to that, you know, your ecosystem is where we started. This is bigger than simply a good leader. And you can teach them all kinds of skills about how to be empathetic, how to be focused, how to really feel what others are doing, to see the big picture, be a visionary, a strategist, not just a tactical person. At the end of the day, they better pay attention to who's following them because they can be marching along and have nobody next to them. They're all, this is a look that's often there as they watch the leader tell them what to do and nothing happens. The most effective leaders I find in today's generations are far more collaborative than before, mm -hmm. far less autocratic and hierarchical. Um, they've grown up playing soccer, not football, and they know how to pass the ball and let somebody score without it necessarily being them. And I do think um, whether it's my universities who had to deal with soccer kids or businesses where they understand teams differently than they do told, 
Um, and so the leader has to be careful they're not selling and telling and is opposed to inspiring and explaining, skilling, engaging. The words that we use are very different actions and the followers uh, respond and then they go, oh, we can get this done. It's sort of interesting. So if you notice as a leader that you, I mean, now everybody has followers in their business. They're called followers on social media. Like, when, well, if you the notice, part that's so funny. If, yes. so if, if you notice that there are, if that a leader and a business has a lot of bystanders, is there any way of pivoting the the level of followers you have? How do you recommend somebody pivot? Because the bystander is, they're not buying your product. They're not really buying in. They're just kind of watching and lurking and may get some value, but may like it, but not really. They aren't participating and they aren't advocating for the brand. Right. So how do you turn your followers, all kinds of them, into the kinds that you want? It requires mm -hmm. some a real good listening and perception. You may not be able to replace them because finding talent is not easy today. Um, but you really need to figure out what it is that's keeping them from playing the game with you. You know, if it's um, an isolate or a bystander, what, what is it that's keeping them from belonging? People want to belong. Mm. Um, is there something in the dynamics of the group that are keeping them outside of the group? Unless you spend time getting to know them and their story and better understand what their pain and pleasure are, you won't be able to mobilize them to becoming part of this group that you would like to turn into a great followership. You know, it's um, uh, whether it's an accounting firm we've been working with for four years or it's a hospital that system that we've been working with for several years now, you learn quickly that the leaders get frustrated if they can't get folks to implement their what they want. And the folks who are not implementing it get really good at avoiding any accountability and so the dynamic is a very interesting uh, performance. Mm. And in some ways, you're going to have to change. I use the play as a metaphor because they've got a play going on that's not, not getting applause. So how are you going to change the roles that people are playing? What roles should they play? And how do you get to know them better? I don't assume you know anything if you haven't spent a little time hanging out, watching them, what they're doing. I have a, a client in the uh, operating room, uh, nursing staff isn't performing well. I said, have you spent any time with them? No. I said, so how would you know what's happening if you're supposed to lead them or their manager is supposed to lead them, but you really don't know what the dynamics are? Go hang out. An anthropologist will observe, listen, try to understand, assume very little, and then begin to have the folks you want to change begin to help you understand how to do that. And you'll find it'll come from them with far better credibility than if you assume you know and you tell them what to do, they'll laugh at you. So there's lots of good leadership stuff happening, but followers are essential to the whole dynamic of it. And I'm finding it fun to work with the folks to say, oh, I have followers. I say, well, if you're a leader, you've also been a follower. Now, were you a good follower or were you a bystander? So mm -hmm. it's interesting times, good stuff. And you know, like attracts like, so that's a very powerful, um, statement that you just said for for everyone listening what kind of follower have you been to the people that you that are inspiring you that's right because that will in a way determine who's what kind of followers you are attracting to yes. follow you so yep. if you want to be a better 
leader have better followership than be a better follower, right? That's right. But we're not training those folks on followership much at all. And, and so we do that both sides. I said, you've been a follower. How'd you follow? Um, were you an advocate? You know, how, how did you participate? You know, think of your own behavior as a model for what you're looking for, or perhaps you don't want those folks to be like you. Maybe that wasn't so good. That wasn't a highlight of your, of your time. But I do think that there's um, a, a very important time now with remote work and how do we inspire people? Um, how do we ensure that the work is getting done? And on the other hand, their followers uh, can't work 20 hours a day. Um, I had one client who working remotely was doing emails at 10 o'clock at night and was exhausted. I said, why are you doing them? Well, uh, uh, I want to show people I'm working at 10 o'clock at night. And do you think people care if you're working while well, you're overdoing uh, your demonstration of loyalty and importance? You're going to burn up and then you won't be of any value to anyone. But nobody mm -hmm. was setting rules. So she was setting her own and they weren't exactly the right ones. So coaching her was an interesting opportunity to stop. Let's see what happens if you stop at five o'clock and you actually have an evening with your spouse and your kids and you relax. Sure, you can do a little, but you're making this a consuming focus that's unnecessary. And then um, she began to find she got much more done because she wasn't worried about it. So it's funny the things that remote work is going to teach us about work. And about our and about ourselves and our ability, our capacity to um, for what we can handle, our capacity for um, and our bandwidth for being able to navigate the transitions of, because no longer is it like, do you have a drive to get, you know, you have a drive to decompress from work to get home. No, you've got like the hallway <laughs> to walk. Right. So what, when, when it comes to a leader, one of the things that I'm hearing a lot from you is that you take, when people have kind of a myopic focus and you allow for that, uh, expansion of perception. So how are some ways that a leader can expand their perception and look at a problem from multiple different directions? Kind of like an anthropologist. <laughs> <laughs> well, but there are methods that I think work extremely well since we're storytellers. Um, if you've got a problem that you'd like to solve, how do you solve it now? Do you try and figure it out based on your own experiences or do you assemble a group of people who could be thinkers with you? And when you have a, a thinking group, um, what, do they, what do they do so that nobody dominates the conversation, but they all have an opportunity to solve some problems? We're innovation games trained facilitators and trainers. So I'll share with you some of the way games can be of great value. Um, for problem solving, the methodology of gaming is you put people into a new, unfamiliar place, gaming, which people play on all kinds of things, but in-person, somewhat remote at times, but in-person games are fantastic. First game we play is reverse everything. Everything you did today, you're not going to do tomorrow. What could you do instead? The brain is fascinating because once you list all the things you do now, and the opposites come through, and you don't look backwards, you let all of the team begin to come up with new ideas. And the more ideas you have, the more likely you will have big ones at the intersections. And that becomes a process for watching them intersect. I did one workshop with a client and they said, oh my God, that's a million dollar idea and it's been sitting here. 
Hmm, that's interesting. Then we play um, two things. We build a, a product box. If you're going to change, what would it look like? We give you a box, a blank box with magazines and markers and all kinds of stuff and say, build a better product box. This is a new business. And then sell it to us. And often we have them do a, uh, a website behind it so they have something tangible. And then we record it and they listen to the new story about the new box. Now, I can't tell you why. If I said build a new business, they'd be stalled. But if you're going to build a new product box, hey, I can do that. It just goes to show you the power of language because sometimes, sometimes, and, and I see this a lot with business owners who are just starting out and they get tripped up over this how because they put this like, they put things like business on a pedestal whatever you put on a pedestal, you can knock it off. And it's, it also makes it more challenging to get to. Yes. So it's, how do you bring that, the, how do you stop pedestaling that idea, <laughs> that project, that business and That's bring right. it down to a level of reality? I know. And you know, when you play games with folks, it's always interesting because they forget about how serious this is and they relax, this is a game. There's no winning or losing. Um, we love one called prune the product tree. You put everything up on a tree and then you prune it. <clears throat> what have you harvested? Um, what do you need more of? What do you need less of? You know, what are the roots? I've had trees that have all roots and, and a trunk and nothing on the leaves. And I've had trunk, I've had trees with all leaves and nothing to support it. The metaphors are great. And one of my favorite is speedboat. What's holding you back? You know, here's a boat, it's got to get to the destination. What are all the anchors? How are you going to cut them? How are you going to pull them up? What is going to increase the, the speed of the wind to push it forward? And all of a sudden, the ideas come flowing. So mm. going back to your question of how do you get them to solve complex problems? Often very simply, you know, become kids for a little while, play a game, and begin to see it through a fresh lens, which is exactly what anthropologists try to do with you. But until you can play it and hear each other doing it, somehow it seems unmanageable beyond my skill set. Yeah, people are very clever and creative and add a few new tools to your toolbox and all of a sudden you soar and you go, oh, I could do that. So it's fun. And we're so skilled as humans at, at overcomplicating things that are not necessarily complicated. That's right. Because we have such fun making it complex. And that's <laughs> uh, we think we're supposed to. I'm smart. I'll make it complicated. Nope. Make it simple and easy. Make it simple and easy because, I mean, simple and easy. I have a toddler and watching him learn and grow is so fascinating because everything is a game. Everything is play and it's, he's learning so fast. And I love the idea that you had for the product tree. Like I just, I now want to paint a tree on my, on my wall with a whole bunch of post-its <laughs> of all the products well, that, and, 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 and Exactly. But we can do it for ourselves as well. And sometimes my husband and I plays reverse everything. This is what we do today. We're not going to do it tomorrow. What could we do differently? And there is the next phase of the business. It's right there. It's right here. Why do I have to play a game? Because if not, I can't focus on it. And it's fun. So basically, how can we make business more fun? How can we, how can we take that more childlike approach to the serious pedestal thing of business? Well, it's an interesting question. How can we take something um, that could give you far more pleasure and get rid of the pain? The word business is full of things called work, right? And, and people look at work and they've been raised as they've been growing up. School is work. 
right? Lacrosse is fun, it's play, serious. Um, but clearly um, painting a mug at home or making cookies could be fun, but school is serious work. Business is serious work, why? Because we named it that. Um, but maybe if we flipped it all and we said, you know, school is fun, learning is fun, you can do it because when you relax, you learn far better. And we're very active learners. We believe that if you experience something, you learn it far better than if I tell you about it. I wish you and I could experience this instead of doing it remotely. But the experiential learning is extremely important. Now, how do you take work and make it fun? You just tell your mind that this is really a lot of fun and get people to laugh a lot. You'd be amazed that when people are enjoying the day, they come to work ready to add value innovatively, not simply do their task. And I do think the leader today can create an environment where people feel appreciated. We used to talk about this when I ran a bank. They wanna feel trusted, important, special, and appreciated, the TISA. But in fact, if you talk about every day, I wanna feel trusted, important, special, and appreciated, um, humans feel well, they feel happy, and they have a good time. They try to go out of their way to feel trusted, important, special, and appreciated. It's simple. Um, it's not about how much they got done, it's how much you appreciated how much they got done. And all of a sudden, it's a pleasure to come to that thing called work and, and enjoy it. To your point, one of my clients, um, I've been working with them, and, and they said they are very happy not coming back into the office. They save two hours of commute time. They get far more done and they don't ever wanna wear a suit again. And I'm laughing because all that was good is not, and all that was bad is good. So, you know, we reverse everything, it's fun. That's such a fun game to, to play in uh, reversing everything. Have you found culturally um, with different, with clients around the world that there are different ways to adapt fun? Like the, like, for example, like one of my clients is British and he just has a bit more of a formal air to what he does versus some of my U.S. clients are much more casual in some ways. Um, they're still driven. They're still ambitious, but there's a different type of fun that they have. Have you found how to play with the, the cross-culture fun? Interesting question. The, um, the gentleman who developed innovation games has done it globally. And we often talk about the challenges in different cultures. When we did our training, we did it in Brussels in Metternich. And we had a dozen people, all of whom were from other cultures. Some spoke four languages. It was very interesting to see how they thought about solving the problems that the games were there to help them solve. And it was interesting learning about their perceptions, their values, and, and it was just a terrific way to see how creative those cross-cultural experiences are. Have I actually done things where we're trying to make it fun across cultures only within the US? I will tell you Little Rock, Arkansas is not the same as Los Angeles and Dallas is not the same as outskirts of Chicago. And I've been to parts of Wisconsin into the milking cows area that are very different than Louisiana. It doesn't take you outside of the country to see how different this country is. And what is good someplace doesn't work in others jokes in one, didn't go over it all in another. And it's and then you add to being a gender complexity issue around being a woman, mostly among guys. Um, it is an interesting uh, 
uh, challenge. I've done 450 workshops in the last 10, 12 years. Um, and each one of them has been a different challenge to engage um, usually men CEOs in ways of seeing their business through a fresh lens, how to begin mm -hmm. to change and how to have uh, an openness to the new that's coming. And so I, I've been bruised and battered a bit, but by and large, uh, they keep asking me back to lots more. And I think that the pain of change is something that people know they have to address. So it's been interesting. And I also find being a podcaster like yours, um, it's fun to share with others um, the things to help them change. And sometimes I just have fun on those podcasts, poking through ideas and sharing them with the listeners and, and trying to make even the podcast interview fun. Awesome. I love that. Especially since, since you kind of addressed a bit of the biases. And I want to, I want to read something that you wrote on your blog um, to, to, that was, if only you can see how powerful women are leading us out of this pandemic. And you said, our brains have a fascinating ability to see only what we want to see, i.e. only those truths that support our own story of reality, which has little to do with evidence-based research or factually supported data. Furthermore, since we are usually the hero in our own story, we keep searching for data that makes us feel secure and certain of what to expect. Perhaps we need to drop the biases that cloud our interpretation of events. <laughs> I loved it. I was cheering. I was cheering. I was so, I, <laughs> I was cheering. So with, with our human quest for certainty, why would anyone go into creating a business? <laughs> because... <laughs> that I think that's the real question. Like if we're constantly seeking that certainty, how have you seen that desire for certainty be at the detriment of the business? Oh, that's a, a great question. Um, you ask good questions. Thank the you. desire, well, the brain decides based upon its status and its certainty and its autonomy and its relationships and its fairness. We talked about in the neurosciences, but the human is, um, I don't know if you know um, Martin Silverman's stuff out of the University of Pennsylvania about homo prospectus. Humans want to know the future. And we live today, not based on the past, but on what we see coming. And so consequently, we need to be able to frame that future in such a way as it will enable us to take the steps forward to get there. It may not be real. We don't really know what the future is. But the research is coming out. It's just fascinating that we need to see ahead and we make it certain, even if it's not, so that we can live today knowing that that's the right path to take to get there. So quick question, why would we go into business? I don't know, I grew up in a family firm, multi-generations who had grown a business very successfully. I was supposed to go into it, I decided no, I'd rather go study them. But, but we, we do that because we often have, well, we, we wanna make a living, so we have to find a way to do that. We may not want to work for someone else, and that leads us to building our own business, but we may actually have an idea that really wants to come alive. And when we work with entrepreneurs, um, what we find is that they have a fabulous idea. They just need a type A to organize them and to give them structure around it. And they need a, an ability to get control over the idea minute stuff that comes through and begin to build something. The people I love are the builders. Um, they're not controllers, they're creators. And if you help them write, they can soar. 
And what always breaks my heart a little bit is the folks who built their business at 25 or 30 million and sell it with great joy, come inside a new acquired situation and fail and find themselves after two years, can't wait to get out, you know, whatever that contract was, um, big where they are now, a new member of a team that they didn't create isn't comfortable. And they come back and start. Remember, I'm married to a serial entrepreneur. After several businesses, I know that uh, they, they don't all succeed, but it didn't matter. That worked, that didn't, so what? Off we go to the next one and they build. And so I've lived with that question about why are we building another business? And the last one went to the fifth largest in the US with great joy, was sold for a lot of money with great joy. And then we start the next one. And there's something about builders that are exciting. Um, and I have a hunch you've worked with many of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> many. <laughs> I, I, lo- I love the builders because when you just get them aligned, mm-hmm. it it just there it's like that little last bit on the on a bow and arrow and you pull back that just a little bit extra and they soar so much farther um and i I would love to know like one of the things that has always bothered me is this a build is the 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 failure rate of businesses and now there's many reasons for that but how do you see um a startups uh, the leaders of a startup, their their desire for certainty, in in any do you do you see a correlation between and it in any way affecting the the business's ability to actually succeed beyond three years? Well, failure rate is is traumatic, uh, dramatic and traumatic uh, because they work so hard to get going, but what they often lack, at least what we found is a real product or service that's different from the rest. So they are imitative, maybe with a tweak so it's incrementally better, Um, but they really haven't listened to the unmet needs or non-users out there who have a gap. They don't create a market, they compete in one. And I -hmm. think the biggest problem is to be a competitor, not a creator. Um, As blue ocean strategists, we help them create a new market and begin to see what's missing as opposed to what others are doing that they can do also. So I don't care whether you're in the creative area, you're a marketing company, you are a digital marketing company, if you're just another, it's easy to switch. I had an IT consulting business as a client and he was losing clients to cheaper solutions. They weren't any different, they're all the same. And if you're not any different, I can easily go to someplace cheaper and get the same whatever. And so a lot of the businesses simply don't understand that Um, their value here is to do something that somebody needs at a price that's affordable or appropriate, um, but to create a market. And then the second thing, very often they have no marketing. They don't tell their story. They're not inbound marketers. They don't know who's searching for them. So they're they're hoping someone will find them. The inbox may, the telephone might. Um, Their network, word of mouth is how we grow. Well, do you have that much network to grow your word of mouth? I mean, you, you stall and you stumble, you lose a big client, you don't know where you're going next, and you don't have any strategy for growth. Um, and I find that the often I work with mid-market companies, first thing I say, where's your marketing? Huh? <laughs> you know, well, I'm, if you're so good, how will people ever know about you? And then when they find it, I said, <laughs> you got to tell a story and own a space on the market. And quite frankly, Google has created a whole new uh, space. So if you're not search uh, optimized, nobody will find you. We work very hard on content marketing. We have a whole division that does inbound marketing and we're HubSpot partners. And we really understand that search is the 
it's the start of a whole conversation. And if they can find you on search, so I score high on Blue Ocean Expert, Culture Change Expert, Corporate Anthropology Expert. Uh, we were ranked the top agency for corporate anthropology in New York this year. But I think that, that, that we need to understand how people shop and they don't do it the old way. They, they go searching. Even if they are said, you should go talk to Andy Simon, they'll search you. And if you don't come up, you can't be any good. So there's some really important things about not, the, the failure can be, because I wasn't that good, but often you're not doing anything anyone needs. So why, why are you there? And um, sometimes it does fail because you're not very good, but sometimes, you know, sometimes the market shifts, but more often than not, you got to craft a market and you have to build it. So I do think that building it is not a skill set entrepreneurs often have. They create it, but they don't build it. How do you build a, a market? Well, it's a great question. The question is, what market is it that you're going to create? And how are you going to tell a story over and over again to whom? Where they come to you? Are you a thought leader? Have you been speaking to people and establishing yourself as a place to go? What is it about you that differentiates you from the rest? And do people know about it? Is it meaningful? You know, it's, they focus a whole lot on the manufacturing or the product or the price. We work with one manufacturer of um, steel fenders for cars. And uh, we met with them in, in uh, Prague with all their national global uh, man managers. The only problem with making steel fenders for cars is cars were being made out of aluminum. So a 49-year-old company, family firm that had grown beautifully, had high technology, had simply ignored the fact that the market was changing. And they were going to fail because nobody was going to buy their product anymore. So what were we missing? So we had to reinvent them. They had to reinvent themselves and figure out what they were going to be able to do, particularly if autonomous vehicles come along and they won't need any fenders anyway. So it is a great deal of ecosystem wisdom mm -hmm. that you got to think beyond what I make and why it's good and begin to build a market where you have a real need. Uh, and at the end of the day, that market's going to come and go, and you better be right there with them, coming and going. The most successful, sustainable companies are forever changing their strategy to adapt to the new market. Stay out there, listen, and don't wait until you follow someone else. You can lead a little bit. It's good. And also remember what type of follower you are <laughs> so that you can attract the, the, the best type of followers. That's right. So... Oh my gosh, there I have so many questions for you because I'm just I'm I'm loving the way you think and especially the the fact that you you mentioned the marketing is so essential. I was just on a podcast the other day and he was a professional speaker and he's he was talking about like what happens when somebody googles you. And I mean nowadays even in dating, people will google the person that they're going to be seeing in some way. I mean, I, I know I Googled my husband <laughs> before I went on our first date. So I wanted to know, I wanted to know a few, a few things about him. He Googled me as well. And so look, really looking and understanding what your presence is and that it's, it's not marketing is not this like, Ooh, it'd be nice when I have the budget, da, 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 da. It's like, no, it's, it's a necessity right now. So what are some tips that you could give to market to the, the people who are asking the questions yes. to market to the searchers? 
Well, um, a couple of things. Uh, first, what's your elevator speech? You know, I mentioned to you that when I was going to go into business, I met with my PR firm and John listened to me and he said, oh, you're a corporate anthropologist that helps companies change. And I haven't gone away from that in 22 years. So the question is, what's your, what, what's the simple brand story about why you and brands answer the question, why you? The second thing is, how do you consistently and persistently build that story online through content marketing? You read that blog that I wrote. We write all the time. We worry about how do I tell the story about, you know, what's, what we want to be known for? How do we put the right keywords in? How do we not overload them? How do we do it really eloquently and elegantly so that we build search value? Um, and then when you're out in the market, what are you, who are you with? Often I find people go to the same conferences with people just like them. Why don't you go where consumers are or where businesses are that you're not always just in another. Don't try and mimic somebody else. Go listen to what they really need and then build it. And then in today's world, LinkedIn has become extremely powerful. If your brand profile isn't good and it's a personal one, you can have a business profile there, but it's your personal one. That's where people are gonna find you. And that's where a whole lot of B2B conversations are happening. And you better become pretty savvy on LinkedIn uh, because while search has great value in one fashion, LinkedIn is really competing with them about establishing your personality, your identity, your brand, and there are all kinds of ways of reaching people who could use you and choose you. So you can't be ignorant. Twitter has a value itself, um, but I'm finding LinkedIn is to be a really important complement to what we're doing on, uh, on, on, um, on, on search. Now, Instagram has its own market. And I know people who have 4,000 friends and family on Instagram. And it has its own, everybody, each one of these channels, Facebook itself have a different audience and different purpose. You need to become really savvy about it and work it with consistency and persistence so that you're telling a story that's one clear story. And, and I don't think that you can hide. Now, I know people who say, oh, I don't do that. I say, well, then how could you be in business? You know, you may not know exactly how to do it, but it's time to learn or hire somebody who can help you, or at least could teach you. And mm -hmm. it's not um, its not too late to begin to penetrate these markets in important ways. And uh, the uh, last thing is thought leadership. Uh, thought leaders used to make a living by speaking at big events. Without the big events, they're not speaking and they're not making the money either. And they have to reinvent themselves, often for a virtual world where the payment is much less and the audience is very different. You can have 4,000 people on that virtual. And you'll be paid $1,000, not $10,000 for it. And so you're going to have to figure out a different method, a different value, and who is a thought leader anyhow, and what business is that, and how do you do it? So I'm, I'm finding all kinds. I love change. And I'm finding that it's an accelerator to begin to do things better and different and measure the results. And um, with HubSpot, we get lots of good data to know how they found us, where they came from, and why it's important to them. So it's been uh, an interesting journey this past year. People say 2020 was a, a waste, not for us. Mm -mm. No, yeah, same, same here. I think it all depends on your perspective. And I mean, I know a, a few of the common objections that I've heard when encouraging followers and students and my clients 
to be more proactive online is like, oh, I don't have the time or I don't know how. I'm like, there's no better time than to learn right now and check yourself in the story that you're telling yourself about how you don't have the time when you're sitting in your house all day. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, so that's, I mean, and that, that in itself is, is look at the stories that you're telling yourself around how hard anything is, whether it's how hard building a business is or how, challenging social media is, but putting yourself out there in, in a big way is a requirement. It's if, if, if this is, if this is really something that you are, are committed to being in, if you want to be a dabbler, if you want to be a follower, if you want to be a bystander of business, then it, you're not going to be successful. But if you want to really go all in and show up for yourself and show up for the people that you serve, it's about putting yourself out there on a regular basis and understanding and getting to know the platforms. And there are tools and resources out there that can support you in that. And I love the fact that you said also there's, you can hire someone too. You can hire someone to help who, who where that is their genius zone so that you can stay in your lane and focus on yours. It's interesting. I often say to early stage companies, start with your marketing. Mm -hmm. You're starting in the backwards. You think that the purpose is to get a great product out there. <clears throat> it starts with your marketing. If you don't have great marketing, you'll never have a great product. Nobody will ever know about it. They won't buy it. And you'll have none of the uh, brand development and marketing savvy that you need to grow a business. And uh, don't, don't think of that as the afterthought. Uh, and please don't give it to your daughter. I can only tell you that I get so upset after a while. The son gets to, to be the operating officer and the daughter is HR and marketing. Please, uh, um, let the gal have that some- That is so funny because I've seen that so many times. <laughs> and I'm like, oh girl. <laughs> I said, really? Not that they're bad, but gee, you know, it's, um, it's always the, the biases and stereotypes drive me nuts. So anyway, that's my story. I love, I, I, I have just loved this conversation, Andrea, and I, I know our listeners have found this to be so incredibly valuable because just some of the, the lessons of followership, of leadership, and of really communicating and engaging with, with your market and with, with people. I mean, and, and one of the things that was a big giant aha for me with social media and marketing was, you know, I was constantly hear people and myself back years ago, I was like, why aren't more people paying attention? And that was, first of all, I had to check my own story. And second of all, I said, had to say, well, how am I showing up for other people's brands? How am I like, am I just, you know, being the, the, the flamboyant person at the party who's just showing up and being like, why isn't anybody talking to me? Cause I'm so fabulous. <laughs> or am I actually like going into other people's profiles and engaging and in communication and chatting and discovering and creating this process? Yep. And that, that created a following that created the ability. And it's all like, it, it, again, it's, a, it's taking that thing off that pedestal, social media, marketing, whatever, and bringing it down into reality where if you were at this party with, you know, millions of people at, at it, would you just like, stand in the corner and complain that you're just, you're here. So why isn't anybody paying attention to you? Or would you start going up and interacting with other people so that people do end up paying attention to you? Yep. It's fun too. And, uh, and as you begin to network and meet people, even virtually, um, 
and finding that it's a very generous, kind world and uh, people are humble and kind and we are all learning how to do things differently, which is so much fun. It's so much fun. Andrea, I have loved this conversation. I have had so much fun learning so much from you. I hope everyone was taking copious notes. I would love to get into a little bit of rapid fire for funsies. Sound fun? Sure. So who is your favorite female character in a movie or book and why? Oh, that's so interesting. Oh, how can I, I um, so Karen Blixen um, is a bit of a hero of mine out of Africa. So I've been to Africa three times and I, I find that her journey is something that inspires me. So um, that's something that people probably aren't familiar with. Um, but it's a, I've been in her home in Kenya, and um, it's an interesting question. I also think that in today's world of the suffragettes, um, I think that there are many of them that are inspirational. And I'm not going to pick one to tell you right now. And then last, Margaret Mead is really a heroine of great um, proportion. I knew her when I was at Columbia and at the Museum of Natural History. And uh, she's just a quotable, you know? There's nothing that, um, that can't be changed that humans can cha can't change. I mean, there's something that we can all do better. And so, Margaret, thank you. Oh, humans are amazing at adapting and our, our skill set of adapting, though normally it's through pain, like you said, and discomfort and crisis. So what would you define to be your kingdom? My kingdom? Yes. Right now, it's my house here in Yorktown Heights. Um, but I don't think of things as kingdoms. It's an interesting question. Do I have to be a king to have a kingdom? Or am I a queen to do that? Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm a person who loves to be in the country. I have a farm. I wander a lot through the hills here. And I like to be somewhat soloing. But my husband has joined me now on my solo walks. And our kingdom is this wonderful place that we found with a bunch of acres and not a lot of folks. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how I responded to it. It's beautiful. It's perfect. And it's exactly as you, it's exactly as it should be, as I like to say. <laughs> what woman would you like to trade places with just for a day? Uh, Kamala Harris. I live in her mind and what she's going through now. Yeah. If I could do anything to push her along, she's just brilliant and beautiful. Awesome. What if your palace had a swear jar, how much money would you have to put in it on a daily basis? Now, this is a two-party question because it depends on how much you would charge yourself. And also, how would you reinvest that money? Start the question again. If my had a swear jar. If your palace had a swear jar, how much money would you have to put in it daily? So basically, how much money would you charge yourself as well as how often would you have to charge yourself? And how would you reinvest that money? So you want to know if I swear a lot or a little and how much money I put in. I don't swear. I swear on the golf course. So I'll use that as my illustration. And I would say out of 18 holes, I probably swear three times. I try not to be embarrassing to my husband. How much money would I put in there? I would say 10 bucks a swear. And then what would I do with the money? Uh, I tend to give it away to somebody who might enjoy it more than I. 
I might even give them a golf lesson so they can play golf without swearing at their silly, silly ball who doesn't want to go in the air. I use golf. I used to be a horse person. We rode forever. And um, we gave up riding after a bad accident, but we fox hunted for 25 years. And, um, and then we took up golf and I find it to be a great relaxer. And I don't keep score, it's great fun, but I do swear. <laughs> That's your secret swear place. <laughs> uh, life in the home is too happy. I really find myself frustrated um, and I often find myself smiling. Awesome. How would you have your success twice as fast? What would you have done differently? What an interesting question. Um, what would I have done differently? Not much. Um, I do think that the journey is a path we're on where we make good choices, sometimes detours. Um, I'm glad where I am now, and I'm glad I have the energy and the health to continue to support. I mean, my focus now is on how do I help women rethink their lives? We've got a program that we're developing with the book, and I'm working with a dozen women to help them rethink their own journey. And it's working as they are all frustrated, stuck, stalled. And I'm saying, oh, there's a real need. And so could I have gotten here earlier? Maybe. Um, but I have no regrets about the journey that I got to get here and the phases in them and the continuity. My husband and I married 52 years. We still laugh a lot and we enjoy each other. And so we are, um, I feel blessed. My family, my kids are all healthy. They're also mature adults. My grandkids are all wonderful. My son-in-laws are great. I feel truly uh, fortunate. And I've stayed out of COVID's way and I hope to do that for a long time because I don't quite get what it is, but I don't like it. <laughs> what is the one habit that has served you best on your road to success? A learning. I like to learn. Um, a, um, my husband and I are both readers. I'm not a watcher of movies and stuff. I find them, sometimes I do, but I'm, 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 I love reading and I love learning and I love applying it. So I have a habit of, um, of trying to probably buy and read too many books than I can possibly do. And, but I am very curious. And if that's a habit, I'm going to stick with it. I love that. Curiosity is amazing. And learning, I too buy far too many books on Amazon <laughs> that I believe I can read within the span of a month. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I do, but I love it. I love holding them. I love the smell of books. Like I'm not a Kindle person. I need the, the smell and to underline. Yes, I know, I know, it's great. So, but that's me. So lastly, how do you crown yourself? How do I crowd myself or crown? Crown, myself? crown, ah, crown. Um, it's, that's a really important question. I'm assuming the crown is something that is celebratory. So it's something that you put on to say, hey, I did good. Is that the meaning of it for you? You can, you can have it be whatever it means for you. So if that's the case, then I would celebrate the fact that I've been a good mother and a good spouse and a good professional woman. And I've been patient, humble, and kind. And those are things I value a great deal. And I don't think that much of anything else matters too much. You know, I think life's a short trip and I've enjoyed my journey. And um, I feel very fortunate to have those kinds of blessings. Awesome. Andrea, how can we find you? How can we work with you? How can we support the work that you are doing in the world? 
Oh, that's wonderful. You can find me uh, online. You can Google Andy Simon with an A-N-D-I. Um, my two websites, my book and podcast and stuff is andysimon.com. And my business is simonassociates.net. And lots of ways to contact us there. Our podcast is On the Brink with Andy Simon. Uh, and, and I am always anxious to work with people and with companies that um, need or want to change. So if you're at a point, and today it's quite abundant, where you're not quite sure how to plan the next phase of whatever it is you're doing, that's something we have a lot of skill, expertise, and methods to help you do. And it's not a bad time to reach out and see whether someone can help you do that, even virtually, even when you're in Australia. And it's, um, it's been extremely beneficial during this time, the amount of search-driven clients and referrals of can you help us? We're not sure where we're going. That's a good time to reach out and see someone can give you a, a bit of help. Um, and I think those are the questions you just asked, how you can reach us. You asked how you can help us. I don't think you can do much more than enjoy these wonderful podcasts. And Kim, you are a beautiful podcast host. I can't thank, thank you. you enough. And come visit my podcast and tell us how we can make that even better. We have a hundred and some odd thousand people every month watching it, listening to it. And um, I find it's a great way to share. So it's a good time to do that. Awesome, Andrea. It has been a pleasure. As always, my fellow princess and the beers on your throne, mind your business because your reign is now. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If what you heard resonated with you, be sure to subscribe and share your breakthroughs and ahas with me by leaving a review on iTunes so I can keep the magic flowing your way. And if you aren't already following us on social media, come experience the extra inspiration and queenly convos on Instagram at crownyourselfnow or visit our website at crownyourself.com. I am so excited to connect with you in the next episode. And in the meantime, go out there and create a body, business, and life that rules.